0: God, my name, glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and ever, and the ages of all ages. Amen. So, uh, I have to tell you something. I really, really love the book of Haggai, which is the book which comes right before the book of Zechariah. The book of Haggai is on the same exact topic as the book of Zechariah, but it's a completely different message. And... Uh, I have to tell you the, the honest. My, I'm being very just, very blunt and honest with you. The book of Zechariah is 14 chapters. It's the longest book of the minor prophets. I love the minor prophets because they're short, and I don't get lost in the like in the forest. I can see the forest from the trees because they're short. I can read them from the beginning. But Zechariah was always too long, and I have never had any idea what he was talking about until I realized when I started studying it that he's actually speaking. About the very same thing that Haggai is speaking of, but in a completely different tone. Um, and it's full of messages of encouragement and full of messages of, of like rebuilding and reassembling and putting back together. It's it's really, really a book. But before we dive deep into Zachariah, I just want to situate you. Um, I remember for the longest time. Um, I knew various different stories, I remember I did an exercise with my grade 9 Sunday school class a long, long time ago, uh, and I gave them a list of names, uh, Adam, Noah, Moses, uh, Zachariah, David, Solomon, and I told them, put these in chronological order. About two people got more than 50% of it right. so uh, so I think we, we know the, these stories, we know David and Goliath and Daniel and the Lions then, and, and we know the stories, but where they fit in the overall picture sometimes gets a little bit a little bit confused. And so I I I look for like a, a really quick and easy schematic. So if you look at this here, we're gonna go from from Adam to Jesus in 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 three minutes okay just to situate you the overall picture God creates the world in the creation right and Adam and Eve and Noah the whole world goes bonkers everybody becomes evil in Genesis 6 it only takes a few generations and by Genesis 6 every thought of every man was evil all the time four superlatives showing how evil the world had become. So God says, let's wash it anew, and let's begin a a new thing. And St. Cyril gives a very beautiful um, explanation of this, but we won't won't belabor the point. Noah, the flood, and so on. And then after Noah, Noah's like the great-grandfather of a guy called Abram. Abram becomes Abraham. Abraham is the first person to know God intimately since Adam. Noah knew God, but not the way Abraham did. Abraham was like a friend of God. Right? And Abraham becomes the one to whom the promises are given. right? But the promises are not to Abraham, St. Paul explained to us in Galatians 3, nor are they to Isaac, nor are they to Jacob, nor are they to a certain people as like the chosen people of God, this is not actually correct. And St. Paul corrects this thinking in Galatians 3, and he tells us that the promises were made to the seed of Abraham, the singular, not the plural, not the seeds of Abraham, but the seed of Abraham. And St. Paul points that out, the difference between the singular and the plural, and that all of the promises that God made to Abraham, and God made in all of scripture in the Old Testament were made to Christ. And then he tells us, we who enter into Christ, all the promises which are to Christ are to all of those who are in Christ. Um, and so, so, that's Abraham and so on, right? Then Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has Joseph, Joseph goes and gets sold by his brothers into slavery, into Egypt, a couple of generations later, Pharaoh forgets about Joseph and all of that, he enslaves them, Moses takes them out, They wander around for 40 years, right? So now we're here at the Exodus, right? And they wander around for 40 years in the desert, and then Joshua brings them into the Promised Land, and then begins the conquests where they conquer all of of the Promised Land, and Joshua divides it up between them. Then Joshua dies, and all of the generation that saw That were like children when they came out of egypt died and the people forgot god and they forgot god and so what did they do they started to worship the gods of the people the land that they inherited every time they do that they become idolatrous. they get conquered by another nation god they cry out to god god save us god save us god sends them a judge right and god sends them a judge samson deborah and so on right Judges, we're here sort of in the middle of the schematic now, they tell the people, you did wrong, you have to repent. They repent, they lead the judges. So the judges are kind of different from prophets because they also lead the people into battle and liberate them from their captives. And the book of Judges is like this sign with them, you know what I mean? They become idolatrous, they get captured, they cry out to God, save us, save us, right? And then uh, they, they, God and sends them a judge, the judge you know, leads them in battle, they get out of captivity, right, and that generation passes away, the next generation forgets God, and down we go back down the sign wave. you know, and so they do this in the book of Judges, right, and then after that, the last judge is this guy named Samuel, right? and God knows we could spend all evening and every evening from now till the end of the year talking about Samuel. Samuel is one of the most beautiful characters. If you're the top five, my top five favorite characters in the Old Testament, Samuel would certainly be one of them. And Samuel is the last judge. Samuel is a prophet and Samuel is a priest. Samuel is a very beautiful Old Testament prefigurement or Old Testament icon of Christ. As is David, because David was also a king and a priest. Well, he wasn't a priest, but he actually offered a sacrifice, but that's another story. And the prophet. Anyhow, so, and then the people go to Samuel and they tell him, Samuel, we want a king. And Samuel goes ballistic on them. He goes, why do you want a king? And God tells them, why did you get upset with them that they wanted a king? In asking for a king, they didn't reject you. They rejected me. So from that, we see that God saw himself as the king of Israel. God was the king of Israel. So when they asked for another king, it's like if I go to my wife and I tell her, I would like to get married to a, I would like to have a wife. Mary will look at me and she'll be like, well, what am I? A chocolate? liver? You know, well, I'm a maid, you know, I do the laundry, I do the cooking. Like, who? who do you think I am? Right. So, when they tell Samuel, tell Samuel, go tell God we want a king like all, what do they say? Like all of the other nations. So, God says, you want a king? Samuel, go tell him, I'll give you a king. But he's going to take your sons, draft them to be in his army, and take them to battle. And only some of them are going to come home. He's going to take your young women to go work in his bakeries, and to work in his sewing, and to work in... This and to work in that. And he's going to make you pay taxes and customs. And he's going to take you as workmen to work in his quarries and to work in his king, in in his palace and so on. You want a king? I'll give you a king. So what does he do? He gives him a king. Right? This is one of those things where you watch what you ask for. God might just give it to you. Right? And he gives him a king. Who does he give him? He gives him Saul. Right? And Saul does exactly what God said he would do. Right? all is not, uh, you know, the best. The best starts off good, but, you know, things go a little, a little hair-shaped, right? And one of my, the, the, the verse of the Old Testament that I have found the most painful is this verse in 1 Samuel, I believe 11 or 15, I'll find it for you, right? Uh, really, really, uh, I find it the most painful and it's because I fear... That it can be true of us and it can be true of me, and and the result of it, the result of it is, is absolute catastrophe. I will not see your notes. Sorry? We see your notes. Yes, yeah, you yes, yes. my notes. I don't mind if you see my notes. But but but, uh, but you don't need to see them. Uh, so yeah, it's a, sorry, it's uh first, it's first Samuel 15. 1 Samuel fifteen, the all time, my, my all time, I love the Word of God. Okay, don't get me wrong, I love every letter of Scripture, but my all the, the, the all my all time most hated verse in the whole Bible is 1 Samuel fifteen verse eleven. I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me. Samuel fifteen. First uh, Samuel fifteen, yes, yes. verse nine and eleven. Yeah, I'm reading verse eleven. Turn. I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried all night long. Why did God? Why was God greatly grieved? Oh, sorry, I said we would look up the verses. Uh, and the sheep and the oxen and the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good. God had told Saul through Samuel to kill everything. This is the, the genocide of the Amalekites which is another very contentious issue. How can God command genocide? Right? And another very contentious issue. How can God regret or repent? Right? But because Saul was unwilling to follow God, God rejected him as king. How often does God reach out to us and ask us to do something, and we just turn to Him and say, I'm I'm willing? Anyways, let's not go off topic. We're just doing a quick summary of the Old Testament so that we can place the book of Zechariah. So, from that moment on, Saul is a rejected king. And then Samuel goes and anoints David as king when he's still a a young boy. And Saul is still the reigning king. Um, And Saul is still the reigning king. And then the story of David and Goliath. And uh, Saul chases David around trying to kill him. And finally Saul and Jonathan die on the battle of Mount Neboah. And Saul is, is gone. right? And David then becomes king. David becomes king. So we're here in the kingdom calling here. Then you have David and Solomon and Josiah, right? And you have all of these kings. And then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, not the sharpest knife in the drawer. The people come and tell him, look, your dad made us pay huge taxes. Can you, you know, decrease the taxes a little bit? Rehoboam tells them, if my dad made you pay taxes, I'm going to make you pay seven times as much. Right. And so what happens? Ten tribes of Israel follow a guy called Roshaphat, and they become the kingdom of the north. And all of a sudden, the kingdom of Israel, which was a un- one large united kingdom under David and Solomon. Solomon extended the bounds of the kingdom enormously. Right he made peace with Egypt he married Pharaoh's daughter uh, and and so he he basically surrounded himself with either nations that paid taxes and customs to him or nations he was at peace with so from from Ethiopia pretty much as far as uh, as Iraq the whole way up to past into Turkey Solomon like had was had control what either like political control or military control Son came, messed everything up, lost the peace that, that his father had, Divi- the, the kingdom got divided, and the northern the became, became a northern kingdom, which were the ten tribes, and a southern kingdom, which were just two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And some of the kings of Judah were good, some of them were bad, all the kings of Israel were bad. By good and bad here, I mean idolatrous, worshipping worshiping idols. And then the Kingdom of the North gets carried away in captivity, and then about, don't quote me, but about eight years later, the Kingdom of the South also gets carried away in captivity. Who goes away in captivity? Our friends, Daniel and his three friends, they're little, they're, they're young men, they get carried away in captivity, right? And they they, they enter like the, 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 the school, they have to go in and this and that and all the stories that come with them. Now Daniel lived a really long time. So Daniel saw the kingdom of Babylon that took them away in captivity. Then the kingdom of Babylon was then conquered by the kingdom. Let me see, I think I have another schematic for you here. Yeah, roughly. I don't know if you can see that. or if I can zoom in a little bit. Right? Um, right so here you have the The books and sort of when they happen so you you see there's all of these there's all of these prophets here here are the books the books the historical books of the bible are in the middle here you know Uh, and then you have the, the the prophets up here so they get carried away in exile and you have so you have, in, in, in exile, you have Daniel and Ezekiel, right, are, are in exile. They probably were young when they went in exile. Then you have some later prophets like Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi. They were probably born in exile. Haggai, maybe not. Maybe because Haggai was an old man when he prophesied, right? And then so you have the, you have the, the Babylonians who took took the, they took Jerusalem and they took, they took uh, uh Daniel and his friends away in captivity. They were conquered by the Medes, right? And then the Medes were conquered by the Persians. When you get to the Persians, you get two characters that are absolutely beautiful, also not prefigurements of Christ, but they certainly have messianic characteristics. Cyrus. One of the king of, of the of Medes and the Persians and Darius, right? Artaxerxes. So between Nebuchadnezzar and his son Malteshazzar, comes this other guy called Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes is the guy who sent ne- Nehemiah back to build Jerusalem. Okay, you guys following? we are not really. Yeah, they get carried away in captivity. Right, one nation conquers another nation, conquers another nation. God gives. God starts to give, during the seventy years of exile, God starts to give His his grace. And that's why grace is found all throughout the Old Testament. It's not a New Testament concept. It's just revealed in the person of Christ and revealed clearly in, in the New Testament through the person of Christ. But He starts to give grace to the children of Israel. In the eyes of the reigning rulers, so Artaxerxes was the was the emperor at the time of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was his cupbearer. And Nehemiah walks into to, to the palace and he looks, you know, gaunt. And, he, and Artaxerxes, what's wrong with you? And he tells him, How can I how can I eat? How can I drink when my city lays in ruins? And he sends he sends Nehemiah and whoever wants to go back. So Nehemiah, here we go, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, these people were all at the same time. Who was Artaxerxes' wife? Esther, right? So to help you kind of put all these pieces of the puzzle together, right? Who who, uh, who, who takes over the kingdom from Artaxerxes? Cyrus, and then following Cyrus, Darius, right? And so that leads us to our our book our topic, Zechariah. So, if you open the if you open the book of Zechariah to chapter one, in chapter one, verse one, it says, "In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edom, the prophet, saying." So. the second year of of, of Darius. really sad about Daniel getting thrown in the lion's den? That was Darius, okay? So to help you place all these people in their times. So at the same time as, at the same time as Nehemiah, like Esther is married to Artaxerxes. Nehemiah is Artaxerxes' cupbearer. Nehemiah gets sent back to build the walls of Jerusalem. Ezra follows him shortly thereafter to start rebuilding the temple. When they get sent back to start rebuilding the temple, now I'm sorry, now I going <coughs> to go to my notes. Yeah, so Cyrus in 538 B.C. decrees that whoever wants to go back to Jerusalem can. Only 50,000 return. Only 50,000 say, you know what? I'm going to go back to Jerusalem. Why? Think about this. Seventy years they were in exile. They had had, had multiple prophets telling them that after 70 years they will return from exile. The 70 years have elapsed. The emperor says whoever wants to go back and rebuild the walls the first time with Artaxerxes, and then with Cyrus. The second time, whoever wants to go back and rebuild the temple can go. Only 50,000 return. It's estimated that they were probably about 5 million. So we're talking about, what's that? Somebody do the math. 1%? Why does only 1% return? They're in exile. They're married. They're comfortable. They're not happy. Like when you read Ezekiel, you find he's constantly warning. They're not happy. They're oppressed. They're uh, they're being uh, like it was a time where racism was very normal. They're being discriminated against. However, they don't leave. It's kind of interesting, eh? And of course, like 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 Abuna and Malati and like a lot of this is from his book and from a couple of other books, you know, they contemplate about us. You know, we're in, we're in exile on earth. And when you tell somebody like to depart to paradise, you know, no, <laughs> keep me on earth, hand to the nail, right? Like you know, and like you know, the mental image of like the in the cartoons, you know, or like a, like 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 Scrat, like in Ice Age, is like about to like fall off something, and like he's like clawing with all of his claws to just right. That's what we do. But then when when we have the, you know, we're in exile from from our homeland, heaven. But somehow we stay. So in 536, uh, in 538 Cyrus gives the command to go back. Whoever wishes to go back can return. Only fifty thousand return. In 536 BC, and you'll find it this in Ezra 3, uh, 11 to 13. You um, the fifty thousand return and they lay the foundation stones for the temple. Then what happens? Some people come down from samaria samaria is a bit north of jerusalem they come down from samaria and they start to tell them we're going to send word back to the emperor that you're, you're gonna have a revolt and this and that they get scared and they stop the work and for 15 years the work does not resume after 15 years of the temple of god being in ruins After it had been authorized by the emperor to rebuild it, not just authorized, he sent them with materials, with building materials, and he sent them with money, and he sent them with all kinds of of stuff. After 15 years, two prophets show up on the scene, Haggai and Zechariah. Haggai, I'll I'll invite you if you're on Zechariah, flip back like probably just a page, and you'll find yourself in Haggai. In Haggai, you find that he, Haggai, really, it's only two chapters long, but man does he take up the town. I mean, he gives them a woman. If you, if you look at Haggai, you'll find in verse 5, he tells them, you have so much and you bring in little. You eat and you do not have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he earns wages, earns wages to put in a bag with holes. If you go to verse 9, he says, You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, Because my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. A little further down, he tells them, My house is in ruins, but you have built for yourselves paneled houses. What does paneled houses mean? means that their their houses don't only have walls, that they, they paneled them with wood. It's telling them, you live in luxury homes and my house lies in ruins. In, in, in Malachi, I was reading my own personal readings in Malachi. Malachi is the book after Zechariah, the last book in the, old, in the old testament. Malachi, in God's words, are harsh. They are harsh. True. Very true, but harsh. Malachi 1:14, it says, But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male, but takes a vow and sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am as great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. What's he talking about here? When you would make a vow, you would offer a sacrifice. Your, offer, your sacrifice should be pure and without blemish. So he said, "Cursed is the deceiver. He calls the person coming to offer the offering, the worshiper, he calls him a deceiver. He says, "Cursed is the deceiver, because he brings me something lame, something blemished, something broken, when he has a good one in his flock he just couldn't be bothered. Like Cain. Hmm? Like Cain. Like Cain, the offering of Cain. That's right, that's really beautiful, right? A little bit, the verse right before it, Malachi 113, he says you also say, oh, what a weariness. He's talking about worshiping God. What a weariness. And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept it from your hands, says the Lord? Oh, what a weariness. Who of us has not been bored the church? Who of us has not dragged our feet to come to the service, whatever service we need to offer? Oh man, I have Sunday suppers today. Oh man, I have this. Oh man. God is saying, Am I not a great king? Am I not a great king? Do I not deserve more from you than your work deserves, than your school deserves, than your friends deserve, than your families deserve? Pardon me to say, than your children deserve? or you drag your feet with the last ounce of energy you have in the day for me. But you give the prime and the, the best that you have to things that are gonna perish. Am I not a great God? What measure do you measure me with? That's the tone of Haggai and Malachi of Zechariah, you can see what it is. Yes. Like us when we smoke. Like us when we smoke. Like us.
1: Explain. It's an uh, uh, offering of Zechariah. Yes. So this
0: gives you this gives you an idea of the historical context, of the time, of what was going on. And you find Haggai was probably about 70 or 80 years old when he prophesied. Zechariah, if we go back again to chapter 1, verse 1, Zechariah was the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. Who are these people? He was born to a guy named Berechiah, and Berechiah's dad was Edo. And you're going to find a little further down, he's only called Zechariah the son of Edo. So was he the son of Zechariah or was he the son of Edo? Well, what probably happened is all the scholars agree that Berechiah probably died very young. And so he was raised by his father, Edo. Edo is mentioned in Ezra as being of a priestly lineage. So Zechariah, you'll find, is going to make lots of mention to the priesthood, to sacrifices. He has lots of allusions to that kind of stuff, right? And it's probably... Uh, and it's probably because of the influence of his grandfather who probably raised him, who is this guy named Edo. So, Zechariah, you know, truth and grace go hand in hand. Only Jesus Christ is full of grace and truth. You find Haggai and Malachi declaring the truth, while Zechariah sent at the same time declaring grace. So the message of Zechariah is full of grace, full of encouragement. At the same time as they got a good slapping from Zechariah and Malachi, telling them, what are you doing and why aren't you rebuilding the temple and so on. At the same time as Zechariah came with the word of encouragement, we find that both of these are necessary. Spiritual guidance, they, they taught us, they try to teach us to try to measure both. Whatever the person needs more in their spiritual life, then that's, you know, what, how they should be guided or what God should give them. When somebody is, is slack and not serious, they need a, like a word to kind of toughen them up a little bit. And when someone is downtrodden, broken, and so on, they need a word of encouragement. So you'll find Zechariah is that word of encouragement. But they, they go hand in hand. If you have one and you don't have the other, you get imbalanced. You know, and so that's why we have to take Scripture as a whole. We can't just take pieces alone, right? And that's why I'm going through all this trouble to give you all of this concept. Zechariah, the name Zachariah means Jehovah remembers, and it's a very it was a very common name. So over 30 people in Scripture are named Zachariah, the father of John the Baptist, and so on. It's the longest book in um, of the minor prophets. It's the most quoted book of the Minor Prophets in the New Testament. It's the most expounded upon book of the Minor Prophets uh, by the early church fathers. Um, and uh, probably Zechariah probably began his prophecy in 520 B.C., um, in the second year of the, of the reign of, uh, of, of Darius. And the latest date which is mentioned in the book is 518 B.C. Um, it has a lot of prophecies about the Lord Jesus Christ, beautiful prophecies. The, pro- uh, the prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ entering Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, the colt the, full the of the donkeys in uh, chapter 9, verse 9. Being delivered for 30 pieces of silver is in chapter 11, verse 2. The wounds of Christ are depicted in Zechariah 13, 6. Being pierced in chapter 12. Being the, the suffering shepherd in chapter 13. Um, his kingdom is open before all, chapter 9, verse 10. The four horsemen of the, old, of, of the book of Revelation, we're going to cover those today. The measuring of the city, uh, of the great city in the book of Revelation. The two lampstands and the two olive trees from the book of Revelation are also mentioned in uh, in Zechariah and the scattering of the sheep. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, there's there's more prophecies you can see on the screen here, but I'm gonna kind of skip down. The most prominent feature of the prophecies, Abuna Tadras tells us, is that the Messiah will appear to the poor. The only place in Old Testament scripture that talks about the Messiah appearing to the poor, I mean it. In Isaiah, he says, I was sent to the poor, but that the the Messiah will appear uh, appear as someone who is poor is in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. A couple of just really important points. The book of Zechariah is sort of two parts, chapter 1 through 8, and then 9 through 14. There's actually a little bit of controversy about the authorship. Some people say that it wasn't written all by one person. All the early church fathers and all the contemporary Orthodox uh, like commentators agree that it was written all by one person named Zachariah, but that he probably wrote part of it early in his life and then wrote the rest of it later in his life. And that's why the style of writing is different. The first part um, Concentrates really on the building of the temple and encouraging them to rebuild. The second part concentrates a lot on, on the Messiah. So let's dive right in. Just so the the first part, chapters one through six, is a bunch of a call for repentance and then a bunch of visions. So we'll read and I'll stop every little while and share um, and share a little bit with you about what's going on. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet, saying, The Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So he begins right off the bat in verse 2 telling them, The Lord is very angry with your fathers not shy to say the message. So we shouldn't interpret grace as some kind of timidity of truth. We're too embarrassed to say the truth, so we'll just just say something nice. Or say the nice part without saying, no, he says to them the Lord is being very angry with your fathers. But he follows it up right away. Thus says the Lord, return to me and I will return to you. If, uh, if you open 2 Chronicles 7.14, you'll find the prayer of Solomon, the dedication of the temple, where, where God promises them that if you worship other gods and this and that, and you get carried away, and I turn my face away from you, sin, and you turned back to me, I will return to you. 36.15, you'll find that there is, if somebody can, can get it for us, there is a prophecy about the end of captivity. Somebody look that up for us, and then they somebody has it, just put your hand up and read it for us. In and and, 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 and James 2 Chronicles 36.15, in James 4.8, he says, drawn God, St. James tells us, drawn near to God, and God will draw near to you. Flee from the devil, and will flee from you. So there's always, there's always an open door of repentance. And every story of return and every story of rebuilding and every story of regeneration and every story of a comeback will always begin with a personal repentance. And the Lord brought of their father's son. To whom the former prophets preached, saying, "Thus says the Lord of hosts: Turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds." But they did not hear me," says the Lord. "Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever?" He's telling them, "Look, look how the, look how they ended up, and where are the prophets who went and preached to them? They also they they also ended. Their story also ended. Jeremiah, Isaiah, where are they now?" So he's telling them, he's telling them, turn your eyes to God. Like their fathers, who were idolatrous, perished. Or were taken in captivity and perished in captivity. The prophets who were righteous and warned them, they also died. And they also perished. So he's telling them, he's telling them, wake, wake up. Wake up, return, turn your eyes to God, not because then you will live forever on earth. No, this isn't like a, a quest for like the fountain of youth to live forever on earth. This is, this is, look, look, Zechariah is telling them, he's telling you, he's telling me, look to where you're going. Look to where you're going. Because it's a beautiful place. Because it's a beautiful place. Remember, the book of Zechariah is all encouragement. Get, we're going to get to that. Remember, it's about rebuilding the temple, right? Which could be understood in its historical context. If you remember on Sunday, maybe some of you heard it or some of you didn't, I was saying all the prophecies in the Old Testament can be interpreted in four ways. Okay, this is just for your own general knowledge, not just for the book of Zechariah, but all the prophecies. They can be a personal interpretation. How does this apply to you in your life? They can be. Interpreted in their historical context, Zechariah talking to them about rebuilding the temple in 500 B.C. Okay, they can be understood. Almost all the prophecies can be understood in all these four ways. About the first advent of Christ, right? I can't help but tell myself that it's supposed to come up later, but I'll tell you. Saint Didymus the Blind says that what is this rebuilding of the temple? What is this temple but the incarnation of Christ? Like the, the Spirit of God dwells in humanity. Where does it dwell in humanity the most clearly, the most heavenly, the first the very first time, in Christ Himself becoming flesh? And that also could be understood, of course, as, it, as the second coming in the second coming of Christ. So four ways to understand all prophecies: personal in your own personal spiritual life, in its historical context. About the coming of the Messiah, the first coming of the Messiah, right, and the life of Christ, or about the second coming, right, rebuilding the temple which lasts forever, the heavenly Jerusalem, our home, right, and so Zechariah is telling us, you and me, to rebuild the temple, either, which is, you know, your body it is the temple of God, and the Holy Spirit dwells in you, says Saint Paul, First Corinthians three six? Or is the rebuilding of the heavenly Jerusalem. Point your, point your, take your eyes now away from what I was telling you, building your paneled houses, and look to build the heavenly Jerusalem. Build something for the kingdom. Go place a stone in the wall of the kingdom and God will, will share his glory with you. He will have your name written on it. These are my own They'll take them with a grain of salt, right? But look, look to that which will last. Lay up treasures for yourself in heaven, right? Verse 6 Yet surely my words and my statutes which I commanded my servants and the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? Overtake your fathers you means outlive your fathers. The righteous and the wicked. The word of God endures forever. What about giving my attention? What about giving my attention and my joy to that? So they returned and said, Just as the Lord had the host determined to do for us according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. So the people told Zechariah, God has been just. God has been fair. He has been fair. So you can see there, you you can see sort of the beginning of their so now we go into the visions. So we're going to go through eight visions, nine visions. Sorry. So the first vision is in verses seven to uh, uh, verses seven to eleven. Right. Three months later, God sends these visions to Zachariah the 24th day of the 11th month, which is in the month of Shabbat, the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. I saw by night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse, and it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow, and behind him were horses, red, sorrel, and white. Sorrel is kind of like brown. What's he talking about? Many commentators imagine that Zechariah lived near a a valley of myrtle trees. Myrtle trees are very, uh, uh, they're, you know, they're uh, not, nothing particular, like nothing special about them. They're kind of very simple trees. Uh, And around this time, uh, you know, in the month of Shabbat, they would have been flowering. And so they imagined that Zechariah was, was praying there and was looking at Jeru, and was looking at Jerusalem in this valley of myrtle trees from a distance, and he was looking at the temple which was in ruins, and he was mourning over it, and he was praying and crying to God and saying, saying to God, why, why is your temple still in ruins? Why are your people not rising up to build? Why did they not, you know, respond to the prophecy of Haggai? Maybe also he was saying, you know, Zechariah was a young man in this this initial part of his prophecy, and Zechariah was an old man. And if they didn't listen to, sorry, Haggai was an old man. And if they didn't listen to Haggai, who was an old man, why would they listen to me? And a lot of us might say the same thing. I'm young. I'm too young to be serving God. Or I'm maybe not young in age, but I'm young in my spiritual life. Or I'm young in my walk with God, or I'm not very knowledgeable, or I don't really know. God loves to work through these people. God loves to work through these people. Right? And so he sees this vision. He says, and I saw by night. So Munatandras tells us, he says, I saw by night. I mean it could be that he just just happened to be nighttime. But we can understand this spiritually as he saw this before the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw this in the Old Testament. He saw this comfort. And he saw this gentle, encouraging hand of God to go and rebuild the temple, encouraging his people, gently pushing them towards that. He saw it in the time of night, not in the time of day. He saw it before the light had been revealed. Jesus is the light of the world. And it, like it says in John 1, he was the light, and the light was the light of men. But those who were in darkness could not comprehend it. Like it says in John chapter 1, which we pray in the prime prayer every morning, right? And in John 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So before that light was revealed, yet in the night, Zechariah received this, this, this word, these words of encouragement and of comfort. And so we also despite our lack of of enthusiasm to rise up and to build and to rise up and to build the temple of God, maybe God can will send us also a word of encouragement, a word of rebuke maybe, to whip us into shape a little bit, maybe also a word of encouragement, to encourage us to move to move forward a little bit. St. Didibus the blind tells us that the rider of the red horse is the angel of the Lord, a prefigurement of Christ, or a Christ figure in the Old Testament. The rider on the horse, he says, is the incarnate savior. The red horse is the body by which he was clothed. You'll find in our icons, oftentimes in our Coptic Orthodox right iconography, Christ is often portrayed wearing white and red. White is his divinity, like like, like heaven, like the sky you know, and purity, holiness is white, and red is like the like the color of earth or clay. You know? Uh, so the red horse is the body, the humanity, the incarnate savior. The prophet saw him standing among the myrtle trees in the shadows, namely among the, the two shadowed mountains, which refer to the two covenants. Remember, this is at the very end, almost the very end of the old. After this comes Malachi, then a period of 400 years of silence, and then John the Baptist um, and, and Christ. So the shadow between the two mountains referred to the, all, the end of the one covenant and the beginning, the beginning of the next. And the Fertile Mountains and, uh, and sh- are shadowed because of the richness of thoughts and the multitude of rest- references pertaining to the incarnate God. Then he sees some other horsemen as well who mentioned. Uh, we mentioned them already, red and sorrel, which is kind of like brown and white, right? Who are they? They are the ones, Zechariah asks in verse 9, Then I said, My Lord, what are these? So the angel who, who talked with me said to me, I'll show you what they are. And the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. When you see this, to and fro throughout the earth, that's oftentimes referring to angels. And demons also, but in this case, they're angels. You find also the same thing is said of Satan in Job, he has walked to and fro through, uh, through all the earth. Um, and I won't go into into too much more than that, but they say they answer, uh, uh, so they answer the angel of the Lord, These these other horsemen, right? said, we have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. And so, one of the fathers contemplates, and he says, all the earth is resting quietly, but the Israelites are in, like, turmoil. Some of them are still in exile, some of them are back in Jerusalem and, and Judea, but they haven't built the temple, their lives are kind of, like, half started, half done, half not finished. You know, and um, and it's almost like the Gentiles, the Gentile nations, are all at peace, but the people of God are still kind of not like they're kind of like stunted; they haven't reached their full potential. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, "O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you are angry these seventy years?" Now. First time I read this, I, I I got it wrong. Okay, imagine this: what's happening here? Zechariah is praying amongst these myrtle trees, and appears to him like a red horseman, and these other colored horsemen behind him. And he's having a conversation with this red horseman, who is also called the angel of the Lord. Right? Now, the first time I read this. How long, O Lord? Right in verse 12. I thought that was Zachariah who was saying that, but read it again. It says, Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you, have not, will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you were angry these 70 years? So it's actually the angel of the Lord, which is a prefigurement of Christ, who is crying out to the Lord of hosts, saying, how long, O Lord? This is like a beautiful and prime example of the intercession of Christ. We find in John 17, Jesus Kneeling and praying his heart out for us. In uh, Isaiah 63, verse 9, somebody look it up for us and read it for us. It's very beautiful. If you're going through a rough time, or if you feel like things are, are not going the way you want them to, and nobody understands what you're going through, read Isaiah 63, verse 9. In 1 John 2, one it says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So we find here evidence of, of, of a of conversation happening between the second person of the Trinity and the Father. Somebody got Isaiah 63.9 for us? In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved him. In his and love, that, and that, that, that's it. In all his affliction, sorry, in all their affliction, in all their affliction, he was was in all their affliction, he was afflicted. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. Like, do you not see how this this first little passage in Zechariah 1, we're, we're like only halfway through the chapter, is like dripping. It's like dripping with incarnation. It's dripping with the incarnate God. It's dripping with the God who isn't in the sky, looking down to us and seeing whether our requests are merit his attention or not. You know. Or maybe John's request is a good request, but didn't ask properly. They didn't fast enough. They didn't know. He is with us. He has solidarity with us. He is the one, the second person of the Trinity, crying out to the Lord of hosts, saying, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, will you let will you, will you let the nations who conquered them will you leave them? to talk And you're going to see it get answered in the second vision. Hopefully we'll, hopefully we'll get through today. Go to verse 13. Underline verse 13 if you need a word of comfort today. If you need a word of comfort today, underline verse 13, And the Lord answered the angel who talked to me with good and comforting words. The Lord has good and comforting words for you today. The Lord loves to be good to you and to comfort you. So the angel who spoke with me said to me, proclaim saying, thus says the Lord, quotes, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. The word zealous here could be equally translated as "as Jealous. Rhyme, but that has nothing to do with it. Just the word, that, the Hebrew word which is used there, the Greek word in the Septuagint, could be equally described as zealous or as jealous. Saint Didymus the Blind tells us that God is zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion and for rebuilding the temple. This is the part that I was telling you about that that temple. You know, St. Didymus the Blind says that house is the human body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he received as his dwelling place. Have Have you ever stood to pray and told God, like, God, why is your timing different from our timing? Have you ever stood to pray and told God, like, God, why are you so slow, you know, and told God, like, God, like... Hurry it up a little, you know? Whether you said it with a laugh like I am saying it or whether you said it with tears, right? Who of us has not prayed that prayer or at least felt that God, God needs to hurry it up a little bit? We find here that the angel of the Lord, who is the prefigurement of Christ, of Jesus, the incarnate God who has, who feels what we feel and who is has a common experience with us is saying I am zealous for Jerusalem, or I am I am jealous for Jerusalem, or I am I I can't wait for the building of this temple. And Saint Didymus the Blind tells us that this temple is the, the the human body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's almost like the Angel of the Lord is saying, I can't wait to be incarnate. I can't wait to go save them. It's almost as if the second person of the Trinity is speaking to the Father and telling him, like. Hurry up already! Can't I be incarnate? Isn't it the fullness of time yet? Like Saint Paul says in Galatians, right? We find here like a yearning, an earnestness from of of uh, of God to come and to be with us and to share with us in our common experience. And then Saint Denis also says. We should add that every believer as well is a house built to become a temple of God. The Holy Scripture says do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you. And the Savior himself clearly says if anyone loves me and will obey my teachings, my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. In John 14, 23. So this can be understood in the incarnation of Christ, can be understood as each one of us. God is zealous for for each one of us. He's full of zeal. He's full of, 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 of a holy, deep yearning and desire for each one of us to achieve the full potential of being His temple and the Holy Spirit in the life And us can be understood in, as us as a as a community, as a church, can be understood in terms of Second coming, that God is yearning for his holy community, the whole body of Christ, all of the believers from Adam until the end of time, to come together and to be that temple, that that, that temple which lasts forever, the heavenly Jerusalem. And then in verse 15, comfort for you, he says, and I'm exceedingly angry with the nations at ease, for I was a little angry. And they helped, but with an evil intent. What's he talking about here? Remember the the, the other horsemen, they walked to and fro fro throughout the earth and they said, Everybody is at peace. Speaking mostly about the Gentile nations. Now the Gentile nations, right, they're the ones who conquered, they're the ones who conquered Judah and Israel, right? But they conquered them with like extreme brutality. Brutality. Like, God wanted them to conquer them and take them away in captivity. He didn't want them to. It's written in the Bible to pluck their eyes out and chain them and and, and slaughter their children before their eyes and all kinds of of horrific things. You know? So, God is saying, like, like I gave those Gentile nations a a little bit of rope, but man, they ran it. You know? They didn't didn't do what I commanded them. And so I'm angry. And this is the perennial question, why do the bad guys win? Which is the question addressed in Habakkuk, right? Why do the bad guys win? Habakkuk chapter 1, from the very first few verses, Habakkuk says, why do the evil prosper? Right? And God answers Habakkuk a little bit. But you can see here that God is not pleased. God is not pleased with the the people to conquer Jerusalem. Verse 16, Therefore thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. Instead of the word Jerusalem, instead of the word Jerusalem for this whole book, put your name. John Boutros lies in ruins. The soul, the soul of John Boutros lies in ruins while the will of John Boutros has been building panel houses. But instead of a word of rebuke in the book of Haggai, in the book of Zechariah, he says, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. I am returning to the soul of John Boutros with mercy. Put your name in. My house, the soul John, the soul of Isaac, the soul of Monica, the soul of Marina, the soul of Mark, the soul of Marina, the soul of Andrew, the soul of put your name. My house, my dwelling place shall be built in it. Underline that promise from God to you. God is promising to make you come back to me with mercy. says the Lord, and a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. The surveyor's line is very, very, you can't help but think of the measuring line that was mentioned in the book of Ezekiel, or the, me- or the angel which measures the heavenly Jerusalem in the book of Revelation. Right? You buy a new property, you get a survey. Tell you, they give you a picture. It tells you what, what what land is yours, from where to where. Somebody came and measured. You know, they measured the lot. There's an there's there, there's there's plans. There's architectural drawings of this temple. God has a plan. It's not random chance to build. Temple in you and in me to build a temple in us as a body of Christ, His church, to build a temple, the heavenly Jerusalem, the kingdom of God. Verse seventeen again proclaims, saying, "Thus says the Lord of hosts: My cities shall again spread out through prosperity. My city, put your name there. My city, Mina. My city." My city, Sandra, my city, Sarah, my city, Mary, my city, Eveen, shall again spread out through prosperity. The Lord will again comfort, put your name there, will again comfort Zion, will again comfort you. He will again choose Jerusalem. He will, again, choose. It ain't over yet. Over. Time is running. I wanted to leave half an hour at the end for questions. but I'm not going to end up taking up all the time. I want to finish this chapter because it's really beautiful. The next it, verse 18-21 to is a vision of horns. He sees four horns, and then he sees four craftsmen that come and chop down the horns. I raised my eyes and looked, and there were four horns. And I said to the angel who talked to me, What are these? So he answered, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. What are horns? Horns are a symbol of power military power, aggressive power, violent power, uh, military power, Uh, like as a biblical symbol, that's kind of oftentimes, oftentimes what they are, kind of like a rhinoceros, it doesn't have a horn there, you know, elephants don't have tusks, you know, so that they can look pretty, right, they're there, they're there, you know, to protect, to attack, to gore other animals, right? So he says these four horns are those who have caused trouble to my people. So, biblical commentators tell us these are the kingdoms of Assyria and Babylon, the uh, kingdoms of Persia and the Medes, the kingdom of the Chaldeans, and then the kingdom of the Romans. So, what will happen to them? Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are, what are these coming? So he said, these are the lords that scattered Jude, Judah that no one could lift up his head. But the craftsmen are coming to terrify them, to cast out the horns of the nations that lifted up their horn against the land of Judah to scatter. Again, a message of encouragement. Inasmuch as there were four horns, there are four craftsmen. Church Fathers, St. Augustine or St. Didymus, they're the ones who wrote a lot about this book of the book of Zechariah. But I can tell you next week if you want. Tell us these are the four Gospels that came to crush. They came to crush the depression of sin. The depression defeats the message of the gospel. God loves you and He loves me. And He has a revival planned for you and a revival planned for you. Don't despair. Don't despair. Be encouraged. Go back and read this first chapter again. And every time you see the word, I will rebuild my house, I will rebuild Jerusalem, I will rebuild, put your name there. Put your name in there. Make it a prayer. Make it a promise from God to you. And be encouraged that God loves you. And He loves to encourage you. And He will build His temple.